Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. The Human Experience is live. Thank you so much for being here. We've got a phenomenal program planned for you guys tonight. If you are looking for everywhere we are live, if you have not joined the mailing list yet, you would like to support the show, simply go to allmylinks.com slash thehumanxp. My guest for tonight, Marianne Williamson, if you have not heard her work before, it's going to be an amazing program. Whether you are listening to the replay version of this or whether you are here with us live tonight, please sit back. Grab a drink. Enjoy this conversation. The Human Experience is in session. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest for today is Marianne Williamson. Marianne is an American author, spiritual leader, politician, and activist. She has written 13 books, including four New York Times number one bestsellers. She is in the She's the founder of Project Angel Food, a volunteer delivery service food delivery program that serves homebound people with uh, HIV and AIDS and other life-threatening illnesses. She's also the co-founder of Peace Alliance, a nonprofit education and advocacy organization supporting peace-building projects. She later received national attention, attention as... The result of her frequent appearances on the Oprah Winfrey show, and she is quite regarded as Oprah's spiritual advisor. Marianne, it is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. You you spent some time running for you know the Democratic National Convention, so I can't think of a better time to have you here than tonight with everything that's going on in the world today. Welcome to HXP. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, Marianne, I mean, let's let's just lay the foundation a bit. Um, you know, if you could tell us what brought you into the line of of service and what brought you into this frame of work. Why did you decide to run for the nomination? I uh, grew up in a generation, you know, we would when I was in college, we would read Alan Watts and Ram Dass in the morning, and we would go to Vietnam War anti-war protests in the afternoon. The cultural generation uh, revolution at that time, the 60s and the 70s, was all of the above. It wasn't bifurcated between spiritual, social, political. It was sexual, it was musical, it was political, it was spiritual. And that's always been my comfort zone that when you're seeking to change, change is multidimensional. Mm-hmm. As my life developed, my what felt to me like the greatest um, service, that which uh, 
just unfolded in front of me had to do with teaching uh, metaphysical principles and writing about metaphysical spiritual principles, uh, particularly those based on a set of books called A Course in Miracles. But I had been raised with a lot of uh, political um, uh, reference and activism, and that had always um, been important to me. It had just been sort of the minor chord and the major chord professionally had had to do with my work in the spiritual uh, world. And from that came uh, activism having to do with nonprofit organizations, the things you mentioned. I was very active during the AIDS crisis, founded AIDS organizations and so forth, peace organizations, etc. And I, my, my political evolution um, is mirrored in a story I once heard that was written by a uh, Protestant uh, theologian. And the story, I don't know what the title would be, but for me it's the story of the transition to a conscious from a good Samaritan to a conscious Samaritan. I was a good Samaritan in the sense that the good Samaritan was someone who saw a beggar and gave them alms. But the good Samaritan continued down the road and saw another beggar and gave them alms. And then the Good Samaritan continued down the road and saw another beggar and gave them alms. And the way the story goes is that at a certain point, the Good Samaritan said to himself, why are there so many beggars? So what I've seen, and that to me means he became a conscious Samaritan. He asked, what is going on systemically here that this continues to be the case for so many people? And what I've seen in my career over 35 years, is that something started to change. Something started to change in the 80s, but at first it was situational. At first, well, it had to do with something like AIDS, which had nothing to do specifically with the social and economic system, although it did with the slowness of the, of the system to respond. But what started to happen then, let's say after 2000, etc., there's a level of despair, there's a level of economic tension and economic anxiety that is experienced by what seems to be the average person in a way that makes no sense in the richest country in the world. So I began to see up close and personal the ravages that so many people are experiencing simply because the resources of this country have been squeezed too much into the hands of too few. And so it felt to me like we, that the people who are seeing this up close and the people who have a deeper understanding of cause and effect and, um, uh, and how, how these things operate on deeper systemic levels should be the last people sitting out um, these larger questions. And so I began to realize how many of these uh, these, these ravages that people experience are due to simply bad public policy. If people can't get, if, if people are living with chronic tension and anxiety because they don't know what will happen uh, if they get sick, they don't know what will happen if one of their children gets sick, they don't know how they'll send their kids to college, they don't know how they'll get out from under these college loans, they don't know how they'll ever be able to get in the game in their life, then they can see every therapist and every coach and every clergy person and meditate all they want, but we've got to deal with the fact that that's treating the symptoms. We've got to treat the cause. And to me, that meant um, that meant a much higher level of consciousness within the political field that I didn't see. And out of that, I thought, well, if you want to hear those things said, Marianne, uh, you're going to have to say them. Uh, and so I did. Wow. And, you know, you so 
you know, very much so you have been in the belly of the beast and you've seen, you know, the inner workings of the system. You, you got in front of the bullet, as it were, you, you got into the line of fire and, you know, now you've seen sort of the pratfalls of what it's like, you know, to run for president. And, you know, what did you, what did you see the inner workings of the system? How did, how did you relate to the way things are set up when you, when a person runs for office? The system is even more corrupt than I feared, but it, the people of the United States are even more wonderful than I would have hoped. That was my experience. Um, the, what we have is a campaign media industrial complex and it amounts to the equivalent, the modern equivalent of backroom, uh, you know, men with cigars who in the backroom were deciding who the candidates would be. That's what happened in 2016 in the Democratic Party, and we know how that worked out. Mm-hmm. And it's basically what happened here as well. But let me be very, very clear and also very careful here. Mm-hmm. The overriding need, I believe, Numero uno is to make sure that Donald Trump uh, does not get a second term. That is where I live in my heart, is where I live in every part of me. So I don't want any criticism of the the system to uh, be mistaken for um, any comment that I believe, you know, we should not support the Democratic nominee. But this is a very serious problem, I'll tell you that. I know what my experience was, which was that after the second debate, I, um, I, had, I was the most Googled person in, in 49 states, and you saw my name and a lot of media. And then uh, three days later, after the second debate, uh, boy, the hatchet came down. Somebody had clearly said, clearly had said, get that woman off the stage. And the way uh, I can say it's so clear, it's because it was so clearly strategized. All the words were the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, clear talking points. She's anti-vax, which I'm not, actually. I, <clears throat> you know, you, we're living at a time when if you have the most nuanced conversation, you can have the slightest questioning of anything having to do with big pharma. And boy, they come at you. So she's anti-vax. It was said that I'm anti-medicine, which once again could not be further from the truth. Anti-science, which once again could not be further from the truth. She's dangerous. She's crazy. She's a grifter. It's like we're talking about, you know, witches in the Middle Ages here or something. And Mm -hmm. that that narrative was created. It was everywhere. You you couldn't open a computer. You couldn't look on television that somebody wasn't talking about how I'm this dangerous, crazy wacko. Um, And so that's how it works. They they get rid of you if they don't like it. Um, And uh, you say, is there a they? Yeah, there's definitely a they. And um, however, however, there are two different political universes and this is this is this is extremely important there is that that i've just described um the pundits and the media and the the political operatives and the dnc and all of that yep it's true it's real however there's another political universe and that other political universe is magnificent and i saw that as well and that has to do with the voters particularly the voters in those early primary states Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, and Nevada. The people in those states 
are very aware of the importance of their um, the importance of their uh, their vote, and they I'm telling you they are up to the job. And to stand in front of voters in those states, it's 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 a humbling experience. It is such a privilege. They they are tough on you, but rightfully so. They kick the tires, but rightfully so. They ask you tough questions, and you've got to know what you're talking about. And what I was very clear about was that if the DNC had just gotten out of the way, you know, those those debates are nothing but a reality TV show. Yeah. It's ridiculous. We had 20 people at the beginning or 21, some very, very intelligent people with very, very good ideas. But what the DNC did was they, they created bars um, that made it and only people in their club could possibly make it. Uh, or with a token here, or a token. I mean, it was so obvious to anybody, like really stepping back to look at this. And you know, the political parties are not even mentioned in our constitution. Hmm. Um, George Washington warned us against them in his farewell address, saying that they would form factions of men who would be more concerned with their with their uh, uh, faction than with their country. Now, I think that in 2016, for instance, if the DNC had not put their fingers on the scale, it would have been either Hillary or Bernie. But I think whoever it was, the people would have felt good about the vote. And I think that Trump would not be president today. So I think the role of the DNC should be to facilitate democracy. It shouldn't be to dictate democracy. It shouldn't be manipulate voters. I believe, and going forward, you know, this is, this is going to be true with everything related to the coronavirus, too. We're going to have to make a lot of changes on the other side of this. And I believe, for instance, that everybody who is a serious candidate for president uh, should have been given um, uh, the equal amount of time uh, in front of the voters and so forth. So anyway, that was my experience. My experience, uh, I, I experienced the vilification. I experienced the demonization. It's very odd to be hated for being someone that you're not. You know, there, there are enough reasons for people to dislike me based on my policies or even based on maybe some truths about me. I'm certainly not a, a perfect human being. Mm-hmm. But the narrative that was created, that's just not even who I am. So that was my experience. But that was then and this is now. And uh, I have I endorsed Bernie Sanders. Uh, and because I believe that his policies, I mean, obviously every person who runs for president does so thinking, well, I'd be the best, you know, but once I was out and I I do regret leaving actually, because I I could have made it through New Hampshire. And when I saw what Yang and Steyer, uh, the votes they got in in New Hampshire and Iowa, I thought, well, I could have done that. I thought that that was the amount that you leave because it's too humiliating to stay. Mm -hmm. Whatever. Um, it was what it was, and now we got we got much bigger fish to fry uh, than just our own personal dramas. Now I have endorsed Bernie Sanders, um, but as I said, whoever the Democrat is, uh, I will be there uh, with all my heart and with all my soul. Um, I think that uh, this president, uh, his policies are nothing short of a, a menace uh, and a, and a true threat to our democracy and. Um, I am uh, filled with passion, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, mm-hmm. uh, for making sure that there is uh, he he goes into retirement uh, as of November. So you know, Marianne, I, I truly respect and appreciate your 
uh, experience and your your perspective of you know what you experienced on the campaign trail and and with the the Democratic convention, yeah. the nomination, the way it works. I mean, it it does seem like it is very much rigged, and so I think getting that inside sort of perspective I think is crucial. So you know, thank you for helping me set the stage. Now, if we fast forward to present day, we are up against the wall against, you know, a a pandemic, a global pandemic that, you know, is is now an everyday reality for us where we are in a crisis now. And it seems like the policies of the current administration are so backwards that, you know, it's putting people's lives in danger. Would you agree with this? Yes, unfortunately, I would agree with him. And, you know, I, I wonder to know, you know how, what do you think we should be doing differently right now in regards to the coronavirus? Well, there are, there are a couple of things here. First of all is personal, and uh, second is political. On a personal level, we all have to uh, take care of our own nervous systems as we go through this. You have to emotionally and psychologically change gear in order to be able to emotionally and psychologically survive this and thrive in the experience. We are a very adrenaline-driven society. Uh, it is the, the common manner of things for people to run around like chickens with our heads chop off, chopped off. And a lot of the rushing around that we do um, really at the deepest level is a way of avoiding um, some of the deeper work that we need to be doing as human beings on the planet at this time. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, <clears throat> said that all of man's problems can uh, be uh, uh, stem from uh, man's uh, inability to sit quietly in a room alone. So this is, is forcing us to be reflective. Um, it's forcing us to go deeper. It's forcing us to uh, maybe read some of those books that we've always talked about how we wanted to read but never went, uh, got around to. It's forcing us uh, to be available, uh, should we wish, to deeper conversations uh, with friends and loved ones than maybe we had thought. It's uh, forcing us, if we really want to get through this, to not make it only about ourselves, to realize that there are people, for most of us, who are in far more of a risk category than we are, um, people who are older, people who live alone, people who have underlying conditions, um, that this is definitely time to check in with your friends. And I have, if, if people go to Marianne.com, I have uh, quite a few video sharings and meditations also. I'm making all my meditations, just putting them out there for people. Meditation is a way to uh, literally emit different brain waves so that the fear and panic that is, among other things, so depressive of your immune system begins to dissolve. Otherwise, this thing can emotionally overwhelm people. And so that's what I meant by taking care of your own nervous system. Yeah. Now, secondly, however, there is a political issue, a big political issue here. Um, this virus did not emanate. Uh, did, uh, here in the United States. But there is a huge political issue that has to do with um, how unprepared we were, why we were so unprepared, and the almost criminal neglect that was displayed by our government, which allowed uh, weeks to pass by before we even began 
to get on top of it the way we needed to, and which in some ways uh, is a trajectory that continues today. That has to do with the fact that for the last 40 years, uh, as we know, there's been this massive transfer of wealth in this country Mm -hmm. uh, through change in tax laws, through corporate subsidies, through the unbelievable uh, undue influence of money, particularly corporate money on our government. We have transferred huge amounts of wealth into the hands of uh, the proverbial 1%, so that 1% control more wealth than the bottom 90%. Now, where, where has that money come from? The money has come from withdrawal of resources to education, withdrawing of resources to uh to public investment, and that public investment is investment in the common good. Mm-hmm. We, have in, we, have, we have laid aside what has traditionally been an accepted balance in the United States between the, um, the protection of individual liberty and protection of the common good, and we've moved so far in the direction of individual liberty, but remember, that individual liberty, for instance, the individual liberty of capitalism, it can only be it can only be enjoyed by those who have the capital to participate. But when people are so living, you've got tens of millions of Americans who have been living with chronic tension and anxiety because of the things I said. They don't know what they'll do if they if they get sick or their kids get sick or how they'll send their kids to college or how they'll get under these co- from, under these college loans. That took us to a place where 40% of Americans did not have the means to cover an unexpected $400 expenditure. We were in that place before this crisis. So when you said we're in a crisis, for those people, they already were in a crisis. Let's remember that. We talk about lockdown. There were people who, tens of millions of Americans who were economically locked down before this. So when you say that that money was withheld from those resources, one of the things it was held from, withheld from are all the various agencies that you don't necessarily hear about on a daily basis. You only hear about them when something goes wrong. Everything from the Weather Service to the CDC and the FDA. You know, we have the Boeing Max disaster. Why? Because the FAA was too under the thumb of Boeing. We have the opioid crisis. Why? Because FDA is too under the thumb of big pharma and on and on and on. We have so many of the environmental uh, 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 dangers that we have. Why? Because the, uh, uh, because the EPA has been under too much the thumb of fossil fuel industries, etc. We had 47 pandemic centers and the president had closed 37 of them. He has been, he has been uh, withdrawing resources from the CDC, etc., And then, even when it happened, and even when we have in America, we have in every area, in every area of problem, we have the geniuses here. We have the best practices. We know what to do. Mm -hmm. But but the president is among a group of people who are so ideologically obsessed with allowing the marketplace, like the marketplace has become some false god in America, Mm -hmm. starting. 40 years, the whole idea of, 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 of trickle-down economics was the idea that marketing uh, forces, market forces should be the organizing principle of, of, the United, of Western civilization, certainly sure. American civilization, and government should get out of the way. 
which yeah. means deregulate. They called all regulations job killers. Well, excuse me, they were health regulations and safety regulations. So that even when this began, and that's what we're living through right now, even today, when the president had signed the Defense uh, Production Act, this is what FDR did after after Pearl Harbor. After Pearl Harbor, FDR brought together all of the car manufacturers mm-hmm. and said, I need this many planes and I need this many tanks and I need, need this many um, uh, ships. And the, the car manufacturers said, well, President uh, Roosevelt, we are patriotic Americans. And as soon as we've sold the cars we need to sell, we're going to get together and we're going to build those cars and we're, we're going to build those tanks and we're going to build those ships and we're going to build those planes. And President Roosevelt said, gentlemen, I don't think you understand. You will not be building cars until I get this many ships and this many tanks and this many planes. Mm-hmm. And it was a mimicry of that, which led us years later to pass the Defense Produ- uh, Production Act, which gave President Trump the, the power, should he have chosen to, to say to all kinds of industries, get these ventilators made, get these respirators made, get these masks made before you do anything else. Now, what happened? He got pushback from 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 business. And I, I want to know who those who, who, we need names of who gave him that pushback because people <laughs> have died because of that pushback. Right. And President Trump gets on and says, oh, it's so great. They're all calling me and they want to help. Well, of course they want to. But this is a national emergency. We can't take that time. So you have the governor, such as Andrew Cuomo in New York, saying we need this material. And uh, the president even iterating today, uh, we're not a shipping clerk. Go get your own. Because he is so ideologically opposed to the federal government directing uh, anything as opposed to letting the free market do its thing, mm-hmm. even in a moment like this of national emergency. So that's the moment we're living in. Now, when you said, what does the average individual do? What the average individual should do, you know, Martin Luther King um, said, we are materially passive, but we are spiritually active. Mm-hmm. We must be intellectually active right now. Everybody needs to be clear about the issues that I just talked about. Everybody needs to be clear about what, what is the argument going on, even right now. In Congress, where there are those who say, no, we need to have this multi-billion dollar bailout of these huge industries. Now, mm-hmm. remember, these huge industries already got the 2000, 2017 $2 trillion tax cut, mm-hmm. where 83 cents of every dollar went to the very richest Americans and corporations. Mm-hmm. So even as, as the president himself has said, they have a cushion The people we need to be bailing out are those people who have no cushion and honestly don't know for sure if they will be able to eat a week from now. Yes. So when you say, what can we do? Obviously, in your own community, find out what's happening in your community, how you can help drop off uh, groceries. Uh, Many people are volunteering, make masks, masks. I mean, there are all kinds of things and different, and it's beautiful what you're seeing people being there for each other. But we also have to recognize the lack of conscience and ethics that not only has been part of public policy, but is even now. And the people need to be loud and the people need to be aware and the people need to be very active. You know, we, uh, 
I, 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 I talk about this stuff so much. I don't know if I already mentioned it on this <laughs> podcast, but you and, oh, I know what it was. You and I talked about it before the podcast. Sure. Yeah. The Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant, uh, governor of Texas said the other day that he thinks that there are grandparents in America who would be willing to die so that their grandchildren would have a better economy in the future. That's Jim Jones talk. That's saying literally die. We should die for a particular kind of economic order. And sure. by the way, no, those kids need their grandparents. That's who they need. Yes. So, um, so every American needs to be deeply aware. We need to be aware of what's happening, uh, who's saying what. And in November, and that's going to be a problem too, we've got all the voter suppression efforts, which could be aided by this. Thank you very much. Um, we need to remember who uh, got it right right now and make sure they're in Congress, they're in uh, the White House, uh, and they're in the Senate, and uh, those who are talking uh, in ways that uh, uh, would would destabilize uh, the lives of so many millions of Americans further, mm-hmm. uh, please make sure they retire from political office. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, it, there's there's so much there, Marianne. I, I love each and every single one of your words because you're so clear. You're so pinpointed on exactly what we need to do to look at this. We need to communicate more clearly. This is something that you said to me. And we need to be very precise on, you know, what's going on in the system, what has been going on in the system, and what we need to do to adjust and to fix this so that it doesn't happen again. And, you know, it, it seems like we are in a crisis of... Of, and we're, we're, we're screaming out for, you know, this battle cry of visions. And, you know, we, we need to be very careful how we respond to this because if we don't respond in the right way, we're going to be catapulted back into the system that led us here in the, in the first place. Well, as you and I were talking about before the podcast, it could even be worse than that. Because, uh, you know, William Barr, our attorney general, was floating just the other day uh, the idea of uh, suspending just for this period of time um, certain constitutional protections. Also, another thing I have some concern about, I have to say, you know, everybody's talking about bringing out the National Guard. We need to have a sophisticated conversation and ask very meaningful questions. What exactly are they coming out for? No. On one hand, they're coming out to build field hospitals. Great. I'm all for that. They're coming out to um, uh, be able to help with, uh, with medical situations. I'm all for that. But let's be very clear here. We're ha- the, the, the thing that I'm very concerned about in addition to uh, the medical issues have to do with not only how are sick people going to survive this, but how are well people going to survive this? How are healthy people going to survive this who don't have the money and aren't working? Now, I believe what we should have is I think it should be a $2,000 uh, stipend every week that this is uh, that this lasts for every American. I think we should immediately halt uh, all those college loans, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We should be talking about, you know, you see all those trucks that everybody's showing on the online and everything, all these videos of people are seeing all these trucks coming in, and they're going to have National Guard people. Well, we, we need to be really careful here. What are they going to be allowed to do? What are they not going to be allowed to do? If you tell me they're going to be building full, uh, field hospitals, et cetera, I'm so glad they're coming. Right. But are they going to, uh, are they going to be... Uh, patrolling the streets 
I mean, what are they going to be doing exactly? Because Mm -hmm. if things get too rough, I'm sorry, but, you know, Americans are so reactive. We own it. We wait until a problem happens and then we talk about what are we going to do? We need to be responsive in this moment. We need to be several steps ahead. That's how we got here was because collectively we don't talk several steps ahead. So let's say there are food shortages. That's what I'm concerned about. Mm -hmm. What if people cannot get food? There could be food riots. I want to know the National Guard is not going to be squashing uh, the rioting of desperate people. I want to make sure they will not be rioting, which is why money has to get to people quickly. So so we have all of these uh, things that we need to be thinking about. And I think that um, the conversations that we're having among ourselves, your podcast is an example. Mm. Um, I'm currently putting out videos on my sites, etc. A mm. lot of people are. The conversation, the buzz, the people that people, the things that people are talking about makes a lot of difference. And Americans are very good about that. When we get a buzz about something, when we're having a conversation about something, there's nothing we can't do. The problem is that we're too easily distracted and we're too easily um, lured away from the conversation about things that matter most. Yeah. I mean, Marianne, I'm not sure if you've heard of this yet or not, but I just read an article today. I posted it in our community. Um, there, you know, this the stimulus bill that they're they're passing. You know, it's it it blows my mind because the the one point five trillion dollars that they were able to with you know the the swipe of a pen, it was immediately released that they were going to put out one point five trillion dollars. But when it comes to helping people like normal people like you and me, you know, it, it's taking them so long. But something that I saw in you know, to your point, was that the stimulus, when it comes out, it's going to create a new digital dollar. You know, so now I, I think, you know, in this in this idea that things can be worse, you know, this third option that when it's reassembled, when it all comes back together, that perhaps they can push us into more control. Um, you know, how about a cashless society for you? I don't know. I hear so much. I see both sides. You know, it's it's almost like, you know, there's a there's a part in the Course in Miracles where it says, nothing in the material world is unholy or holy, except as determined by the purpose it is given, the consciousness of people. So I agree with what you're saying. You could say things about the digital dollar. I don't care what the policy is. If it's in the hands of conscious people, it's going to be one thing. If it's in the hands of unconscious people, it's going to be another thing. And I think that uh, what we have to be is extremely alert. That, you know, this is how we got here. People checked out from politics. People thought, oh, you know, there are other people handling those things. Other people are thinking about those things. Um, And not voting and not participating. Um, this is, you know, so much of what is, of what is happening now, including the fact that Trump is even president. This did not come out of nowhere. This, 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 um, this, this deeper problem has been accumulating for 40 years now, uh, where our government has been so taken hostage, uh, by forces that would just, they, they, it is capitalism without a conscience. Yeah. It is capitalism completely untethered to any uh, ethical or moral concern um, for people or for planet. But in too many cases, um, we, we, <laughs> we weren't careful when we voted or we didn't vote. So um, there's only one antidote to any of this, 
And that is a mass awakening of the American people. And when Jefferson said that the only safe repository for power in the United States is in the hands of the people, boy, the older I get, the more I realize that is so true. You know, it's kind of like when um, <clears throat> women are told this a lot, that if, you know, you're attacked in a parking lot or anything like that, just start yelling. Just start yelling. Um, Martin Luther King said that your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter. So we have plenty of time. We have plenty of time to 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 read about what's going on, to uh, read about the intel, you know, read the intelligent voices. Uh, don't check out whatever you do. Don't check out. This is as important a moment in American history as we have ever had. I agree. I agree. I think this is so crucial of a moment now more than ever. Now is, I mean, if anything, I think you know. I've always felt, Marianne, that this is. Uh, there was something on the the threshold that we were, you know, on the precipice of something huge, massive that was going to change everything. And, you know, now it's here. It is here. And, you know, what I see with people, you know, I, I, I get it. I understand their GABA receptors are full with cortisol. They're stressed out. People are stressed. Their 401ks are eviscerated. They have nothing left. You know, financially, they're hurting. Everyone is sort of locked, you know, in, in their houses and, you know, I mean, that's that's if people are, you know, doing their job uh, in in response to this virus. I mean, there, there are people in Florida and they're on the beach. You know, it, it's it just shows a lack of respect, a lack of responsibility, a lack of leadership. I mean, there's so many things wrong with the way people are perceiving this. And it, it's I think it's crucial now because, Marianne, I mean, I, I don't think that we're the worst of it has hit us yet. And, and I'm not trying, I don't want to scare anyone. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to fear porn this whatsoever. I'm just being as much of a realist as I can be. And, and, you know, based on the data that we see, it seems like, you know, the, the worst of this is yet to come. You know, when, when they tell you, when they tell you that there's no more room in the hospitals because, you know, there was not enough action taken and, you know, no matter what, you cannot go there, you will not be seen. It's it's a very frightening possibility. It's a frightening. It, it's so you know I understand that people are panicked. You know I I had a moment to go to the the grocery store the other day, and it was so eerie, so post apocalyptic. I mean everyone was so panicked. They're they're each staying six feet away from each other. You know which I understand. I get it. And you know they but you know there, there was this palpable fear that. You just don't, you don't, I've never seen before. Well, but there's also a palpable experience. I think also a palpable recognition that we're all in this together. And so uh, this is a, you know, there's a line that every problem comes bearing its own solution. I think we also have a common sense of our vulnerability right now. Not only a a vulnerability in common with other people in this country, but a uh, a sense of our common uh, vulnerability with people around the world. Now, remember, social change does not come about and never has because the majority wake up and get it. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's end slavery. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's give women the right to vote. The majority didn't wake up one day 
and say, uh, let's end segregation in the American South. Social change comes about because of a few people, usually considered outrageous radicals by the status quo of their time, who have a better idea. So let's remember, many people are awakening right now. Yes, you're right. There are a lot of people who are just going into isolation and fear and panic, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of people having deeper conversations, deeper thoughts, deeper recognitions now than ever before. And let's let's remember that. A lot of a lot of what's most important is not visible to the physical eye. So when you said it's going to get worse, you know, hello at the during during World War II when Churchill um famously said this is not the end, this is not even the beginning of the end. It's mm. but it is the end of the beginning. You know, Roosevelt and Churchill and those guys didn't talk to people like they were children. They didn't pretend this wasn't going to last a while. Um, You know, I have felt for a long time, I've talked about how in America we have a crisis of adulthood. Too many generations since World War II, too many generations didn't have to go through anything. Didn't have to cut their teeth. Didn't ever grow up. Too many American men have acted and been like little boys. Mm -hmm. Too many. American women have acted and been like little girls. We're not going to be immature children after this, man. And you know what? There's a, there's a line in A Course in Miracles where it says, it isn't up to you what you learn. It is merely up to you whether you learn through joy or through pain. The, the human race must evolve. We will not survive We must otherwise, we must shift from an economic to a humanitarian bottom line. The the guiding principle of American public policy has got to shift from that which creates short-term corporate profit to that which helps people thrive. We must get there or we will not survive. And it is experiences like this that is proving, it's not even that are going to, that is proving to us. Even right now with what's happening with the president and others saying, oh, we don't really need to direct it. You know, we can let the private sector handle this. People are dying because of that. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, this is deep. It's transformative. But, you know, where there's love, there cannot be fear. Just like where there's light, there cannot be darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. It's not a thing of itself. And fear is simply where the mind goes when it's not concentrating on love. The question is, who can I help? Uh, how can I be of service? How can I contribute? And we are being called to co- co-create. And you and I are doing what we can here on this podcast by having a conversation. We're joining our resources, yours and mine, and mm-hmm. we're doing our best to have a conversation that matters. You know, Werner Erhardt said, you can live your life one of two ways. You can either live your life out of circumstance or you can live your life out of a vision. So if all we do is react to circumstance, that's one way to live. But if you're living your life out of a vision, you are understanding where things are wrong and you are you are creating a vision for what you want things to be on the other side of this. And, yeah, it's tough. And you know what? All that means is that we need to toughen up now. It's so true. It's so prescient. I mean, it it we you know, we are we were a culture of, you know, people at the most minor inconvenience. You know, we would you know, throw a fit, you know, you're, you're in your car, you're, you're raging out, you know, at, at the most little thing. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I want to rewind a little bit. I want to talk about, you know, what you say about the American government and democracy. You know, I, I want to talk about, 
you know, <clears throat> on your website, you talk about, you describe the American government as a little bit more than a system of legalized bribery, where you say that it's abandoned its primary function, as stated in the Declaration of Independence. You know, what, what function is it that the American <clears throat> government has abandoned? And, you know, how has the influence of corporations and autocracy, how are those things playing into what democracy has been abandoned? Well, first of all, I want to make clear, I'm a romantic about American democracy. So my criticism of what has occurred um, in no way is a statement that I don't believe in the possibilities of American democracy. I very much believe in the possibilities of American democracy. And we have too many people in America today. We seem to have these two major categories. One are people who only want to talk about what we've done right and have no listening for what for what the shadows are that we need to correct. And uh, there's another category, though, which I believe is just as unbalanced, people who only have a listening for what America has done wrong and don't have any, any, any listening for what we've done right. We haven't done everything wrong. So let's go back to the beginning. In our Declaration of Independence, it says, and that is, think of the Declaration of Independence as our mission statement. It says that we are, as, as, as Lincoln would refer to it later, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. It says that all, all men are created equal. It says that all men are endowed by God. All men have God-given uh, uh, inalienable rights to life and to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness. Then it says that, inst- that governments are instituted to secure those rights. Now, that was radical in 1776, and it's radical today, because it was a complete repudiation, a complete overthrow of a monarchical and aristocratic system. In the monarchical and aristocratic system, the idea was that God had given power to the king and his rich friends, the aristocracy, and that they were entitled to the major resources and no one else was. We were completely turning that paradigm on its ear, Instead, we would create a society in which all men have the inalienable rights of God, <clears throat> of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that governments are instituted to secure those rights and, wait for it, that the people have the right, should that government not be securing those rights, it is the right of the people to alter it or to abolish it. That was extraordinary. It, it created a, this was not just a step forward in the political possibilities on earth, but also morally and spiritually. It was the idea that we would, to the best of our ability, create a society in which all people would have a chance to soar. Mm-hmm. Now, that's where it began, which was an extraordinary an extraordinary light within humanity's consciousness. But it's also where it got gnarly, because out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 41 of them were slave owners. So what that means is we have always, from our very beginnings, been both. We have this characterological bipolarity in the DNA of the, of, the, of the United States. We are, on one hand, built on principles more aspirational and more enlightened than any that have ever been the founding core of a nation. And we have been, from the beginning, we have had forces that represented the most wicked 
the most violent transgression against the principles on which we purport to stand. That is the American story. It is played out generation after generation. And you know what? No less in ours than in any other. Now, if you look at it over time, we tend to self-correct. Hmm. We, we had slavery, but then we had abolition. We had the institutional, <clears throat> the institutional suppression of women, but then we had women's suffrage. We had the institutionalized uh, uh, violence against black people in the American South, and then we had the civil rights movement. It's simply our turn. And so much of what we are experiencing today is the struggle that is simply playing itself out again in our time. One of the difficulties of this one is that the slave owner was obviously a slave owner. The person who denied women rights was obviously the, a person who was denying women of right, right. The segregationist was obviously a segregationist. Today, those who represent this kind of corporatism, uh, corporate control without, uh, without conscience, they are sometimes, you know, they're the ones wearing the really nice pinstripe suits and talking about how much they love America. So today it's not one evil institution. It's more like that we just have to surgically remove, which other generations have done and brilliantly. Today it's more like a cancer that is metastasized because it's an economic mindset which has made short-term corporate profit this 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 false god under under the the the, the this masquerade that this trickle down economics would be good for everybody that all all there would be this small group of people that would make so much money but it would be good because they would be the job creators so all that money would trickle down now after forty years we see what happened it hasn't trickled down and lifted all boats the way they said it would it has created millions of people without even a life vest. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are today. And it was starting in the 1980s that this, that this, uh, it came out of the uh, University of Chicago, this, this whole idea that a market principle is completely untethered to uh, any kind of government regulation should organize our society. Although I want to mention something that I think is very interesting. Milton Friedman, who was the main articulator of the trickle down economic theory, he himself said, that the only way it would be safe is if there was a universal basic income. Right. Yeah. But the forces, the Koch brother type forces that promulgated it, they didn't want that part. So then that started in the 80s with the Reagan presidency and so many of the forces around that. But then what happened within 10 years of that, that really put the nails on the, on the, on the coffin of our better nature, at least for a while, is the undue influence of money. So you first you had the Supreme Court saying that money was free speech. And then, of course, a few years ago, Citizens United, which gives unlimited power of corporations to influence. And that's what turned our, our government into a system of legalized bribery. And so at this point, I'm reminded of uh, the JFK quote, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable we need a political, nonviolent, peaceful revolution and overthrow of the corporatist um, uh, hostage taking, which has been diminishing and corrupting our democracy for years now. Uh, uh, 
um, Brandeis, Louis Brandeis, the late Supreme Court justice, said, you can have large amounts of money concentrated in the hands of a few, or you can have democracy. You cannot have both. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. I think you you answered my next question was going to be, you know, if if there is a main threat to our democracy, would you say that it is you know, hands, uh, power in the, the hands of the few or, you know, corporate lobbying and, you know, gerrymandering and, you know, what, you know, what can we do to, you know, lessen the impact of this, this negative influence on, you know, on, on normal, regular elections? We have got to show up in November with such a massive wave. What concerns me are too many people who are already saying, no, if it's not Bernie, I'm not going to vote or whatever. Please, 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 please. We must. You know, people say, well, I'm not going to vote for the lesser of two evils. I suggest you do vote for the lesser of two evils (laughs) because one evil is handleable. You know, and when, you know, one woman I remember in the last time when she was going to vote third party, she said, Marion, you cannot make me vote my fear. And I remember saying to her, I wish you would, because this is a case where we must in November, we must, we must show up. And I know, listen, I've been, you, you said earlier, I've been in the belly of the beast, hmm. pretty literally. If anybody has a right to say those motherfuckers. I do. I get it. I know. I I know what it's like to, (laughs) I know, I know how that game is played. I don't care. Right now, that doesn't matter. We have a more serious issue at hand. And that is the the power uh, of the presidency in the hands of Donald Trump. And so when you say, what what do we have to do? Look, do we have problems that we're going to have to deal with the way the Democratic Party has been so taken over by uh, corporatist elements in there? Yeah, we do. Do we have a problem with the DNC? Yeah, we do. Do we do we have uh, things to discuss about after this next election of whether or not, you know, what about third parties? You know, uh, abolition came from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage came from the suffrage party. Um uh, Social Security came from the Socialist Party. Should there be discussions? All of those discussions should happen. However, none of it will be possible if Trump wins again. And you better believe we're good. We, we, we have, yes. Do we have a very, very serious problem on our hands? Yes, we do. Do we have uh, the specter of voter suppression? Yes, we do. Do we even have the specter that certain forces are going to use the pandemic as an excuse to make it even harder for the will of the people to be registered in this year? Yes, we do. Show up for the for the struggle. That's all I can say. Show up. We have to show up. You know, even when when you talk about whether it was the Russians, when you talk about whomever, whatever, the Mm -hmm. only places where elections can be messed with are in states where it's close. So you just got to make sure it's not even close. You've just got to be involved, even if it means that the Democratic candidate is someone you're like, I cannot believe it came to this. I don't care. I don't care. By the way, Joe Biden is a very nice man. He was very nice to me on the campaign. His wife is very, very lovely. Um, You know, we don't even have to go into that conversation. I just uh, cannot uh, stress um, enough how important it is, uh, the answer to your question, uh, and that is that we simply must make sure 
that Trump does not get a second term. Yeah, I mean, Marianne, I I really feel your struggle. I just, you know, at the outset of this conversation, we said, and I think we agreed that it's so corrupt. It's it's like the secret handshake thing. And and then you you clarified your answer and you said, you know, if it's not close, it's harder to mess with, right? But then also, I heard, I read uh, during the research for the show, I read that. Um, you, I, I think, I mean, if it was correct, uh, that you declared a coup that you said that. Okay, let me clarify that. Let me, okay, let me clarify please. that. Thank you. Cause I did delete it five minutes later cause it was, it was not the best choice of words. What okay. I was referring to, remember when I said earlier in our conversation tonight, I, I talked about what I, what I myself experienced that someone clearly said, get that woman off the stage and that this false narrative was created about me. And, you know, everywhere you looked, I'm crazy, I'm an anti-vaxxer, I'm anti-medicine, I'm anti-science, all that, even anti-gay, for goodness sakes, you know, awful stuff. Um, So I've seen how it works. I did not like what happened the night before Super Tuesday. Uh, In that last debate, uh, Pete Buttigieg was clearly not planning to leave the race. Amy Klobuchar was clearly not planning to leave that race. The fact that the night before Super Tuesday, all of a sudden, Buttigieg is out and I'm endorsing Biden. Klobuchar is out endorsing Biden. Beto comes out in Texas. I'm endorsing Biden. I didn't like that. I didn't like because it it, it was like with bear spray when you're hiking and you are um, you have bear spray, let's say, in your Montana or someplace, or like Bear Tooth Mountains, and you have to have bear spray, but you, the bear has to get really close before you, can, before you can spray. What happened by doing that the night before Super Tuesday, it didn't even give people a chance to process it. It was, to me, I know some people say, no, they just did that. It was not. I remember Dana Bash on uh, CNN had just said, it was just this organic thing that happened. No, it was not an organic thing that happened. It was very strategized. And I didn't like that. So I didn't call the vote a coup. I called what happened the night before a coup. It was, however, uh, it wasn't the kind of language I should have used. And I, um, and I, that's why I deleted it five minutes later. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm a writer. You edit. But uh, in Twitter world, uh, boy, once you've tweeted it. So having yeah. said that, uh, not a good choice of words. Uh, it was a drama I didn't like. I didn't appreciate. I didn't think it was cool. And it had the signature of clearly it was this huge, massive stop Bernie thing. Okay. Um, and I didn't like it and I don't like it. Um, but that is not a reason uh, not to just surrender our democracy to those people. That is not a reason to surrender our democracy. Okay. Well, I mean, thank you for clarifying that. I I did find that choice of words a bit curious. And I mean, it it's just very charged, you know. Yeah, and- I was not. A, it was, uh, you know, I look back at it. I actually had received a phone call from somebody in the Bernie campaign. Uh, would you please take that down? And I looked at it and realized, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was not cool on my part. I, I regret that. So, Marianne, if we can switch gears a bit, you know, and, and talk about, you know, health and wellness and how people can sort of connect in with themselves, because, now, I think, is a time where, you know, more than ever, you know, when you were so tired that you were working from your nine to five and you, you came home and you're exhausted and you don't have time to read that book, you don't have time to spend with your kids, 
You know, you don't. You say you don't have time for all the stuff. Now you have time to do all those things. You know, you have time to really connect with yourself and and look for that part of yourself that you've lost over the years. And you know, so so how can we encourage people to do more of that? You know, do we need to meditate? Do we exercise more? You know, how can we connect into that part of ourself, our spirit, uh, that that higher self of ours that's out there? In there, I've talked quite a bit about that um, and written about it. I hope once again that people will go to Marianne.com uh, because I have my videos and uh, check out my my sharings on Instagram. Um, the first thing, and also I've downloaded my my meditations. This is extremely important. If you meditate even five minutes in the morning. That will help to fortify your immune system. It will help to fortify your nervous system in moving through this. Um, It's very, very important that we take responsibility for our emotional and psychological well-being as we go through this. There is no more powerful um, tool than meditation, prayer, mindfulness. That's number one. Number two, the important issue is to remember it's not just about you. There is a temptation to isolate in our own fear. But as I said earlier, where there is love, there cannot be fear. Make this about checking out, uh, checking up on other people, people who are more at risk and of, of, of even if not physically of despair than you might be. And also when you were talking about your kids, well, you have time to be with your kids now. Use this time. This this period will be over. This will not last forever. But mine it for the gold that is available to us now. And um, I, I have quite a, you know, I, I have some videos about this. So I hope people will go to Marianne.com. And um, I have guided meditations. I have um, uh, quite a bit of sharing on what it will take to emotionally and uh, psychologically uh be the people we need to be as we go through this. You know, sometimes you can't control your circumstances, but you can always control who you choose to be within the circumstance. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's the conversation we need to be having now. Perfect. Marianne, I mean, this absolutely flew by. And I mean, I we've we t- we touched on the things that I really wanted to talk about. But you know, is there anything that you'd like to say for the people that are going to hear this? There's going to be an immense people amount of people that, that listen to this episode. So, you know, if there's maybe a message for them that you have, you know, now is that time to kind of reach out and anyone that, that's listening to this, that, you know, anything that you'd like to, to yeah. add in? Well, I think I just want to thank you. I, I think that what you and I are doing tonight and what the listeners are participating in as they hear this podcast is the kind of thing we all need to be doing. Uh, we're trying to have deeper conversations than usual. And in every moment, you create the future and the present. So it's in the vertical. You know, we're, we're, we're very limited on the horizontal plane right now. But you're never limited in the vertical. Um, how, how deep you go. I think there are a lot of people thinking about relationships right now, um, some forgiveness going on, mm-hmm. some uh, deeper, more intimate conversations going on. This is uh, the time to realize everything that has happened on our planet is a reflection of the people we have been. 
the planet will change as we change, as we allow ourselves to become more deeply committed to love, uh, then we will, by definition, become more deeply committed to being of service and of use to each other. And we must evolve into a higher, more powerful, more practical love. You know, when you and I were children, we learned about evolution. And we learned that when a species uh, began to um, exhibit behavior that was maladaptive for its survival, that one of two things would happen. It would either mutate or it would go extinct. Well, that's what's happening on the planet today. Our collective behavior is maladaptive for the survival of the species. We fight too much, too recklessly, too irresponsibly, and we are actively involved in the destruction of our own habitat. We will evolve now. We will evolve, or we will continue to march closer and closer to the precipice. So, you know, we all know the, the, uh, the word opportunity in China means, I mean, uh, of crisis means both danger and opportunity. So I think as we all in our own minds right now and in our own way go deep into our hearts and dedicate ourselves to be of use and to be of service at this time of opportunity, hmm. Perfect. then more things could happen, including even miraculous things than most of us could even imagine. Marianne, thank you so much for your time. I, I sincerely appreciate it. If you just want to say your website one more time for the people listening, Marianne.com? Marianne.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E. And I know that you were supposed to be touring at this time, but uh, you're sheltering in place now? Oh, absolutely. I'm sheltering in place. I have a very uh, generous friend who I happened to be visiting uh, when this happened. And um, he said, why don't you hunker down here? So I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity and uh, the friendship. It's someone I've known for 30 years. He's an old friend, one of the godfathers to my daughter. Um, and uh, I, uh, I'm a fortunate woman and uh, very grateful. That is a great point to end it on. Uh Guys, you heard it here. I mean, what an amazing program with Marianne. And, you know, she has, like you heard, she's been in, you know, the the center of all of this. And she, it's, I think it's really amazing to hear her perspective and to get an idea of, you know, what we're dealing with. So I really appreciate her time and for you guys who are listening to this and I happen to agree with what Marianne has to say, and I really think you need to get out there and vote. Make it more difficult for these people to steal this election, which well, they might try to do again. We're going to be here in a couple days. This was a special episode. A huge thanks to Marianne for making the time to do this. Good night. <laughs>